thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham, who at the age of 92, at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival, was sharing with us why storytelling matters. And we very much agree. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to our May 2019 True Tales Live show, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks to everyone watching and listening, and especially to our studio audience. We're really glad you're here. Give us Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, help us understand each other, and bridge differences. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills, we have monthly workshops and other assistance that we offer to tellers, uh, this is not a competition. We, will have no, we don't have any ranking or scoring or judging. We really believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that is the reason that we're here. Our theme tonight, we're excited to tell you, is Effecting Change, Standing Up. We'll hear from five tellers, Bill Maddox, Lisa Bunker, Nina Lasiga, not you, Arnie Alpert and Martha Reed Johnson. Our MC, Pat Spaulding, will introduce each teller to you, and then they'll have 10 minutes for their story. Following the storytelling portion, we will have an interview by David Frainer of Arnie Alpert, one of our tellers tonight. But first, for the stories. Let's welcome Pat up here to introduce our first teller to you. Come on up, Pat. Hello, everybody. It's good to see you here. First up, we have Bill Maddox. He lives in Amherst, New Hampshire, with his wife, Lynn, and their rescue dog, Liddy. He works at UNH, is active in the peace movement, and in anti-racism and pro-immigration... Oh, here I go again. This is my first... I should practice uh, verbalizing before I begin. Here we go again. He works at UNH is active in the peace movement and in anti-racism and pro-immigrant work here in New Hampshire. Back in the mid-1970s, Bill was part of the National United Farm Workers Boycott. During a major campaign event in San Francisco, he played a small but pivotal role in a big rally where UFW leader Cesar Chavez was to appear. The title of Bill's story is Caesar's Podium. Come on up, Bill. (laughs) I was a child of the 1960s and was heavily influenced by the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement and my mother's democratic politics and activism. So by the time I graduated from high school, I had no intention of going to college. I wanted to be an activist. I wanted to be involved in the struggle. But I didn't know how until I saw Cesar Chavez speak at the cathedral in Providence, Rhode Island in the spring of 1975. Caesar was a Gandhi-like figure, a gentleman of Mexican-American descent who spoke a gospel of nonviolence. Caesar's uh, 
belief was that farm workers in California who are horribly mistreated, terrible working conditions, very unsafe jobs, and always the threat of La Migra, immigration, coming and arresting them often days before they were to be paid for their labors, could have a better life. And his gospel of nonviolence was translated into action through a national boycott of grapes, lettuce, and gala wine. He said the boycott would bring the growers to their knees and to the bargaining table, and that we could all be a part of it. We could all join the struggle by not buying these products and not shopping at certain stores that carried them. And he said that everyone could be involved by being on the picket line if they wanted to. They needed volunteers, and that's why he was in Providence. So I decided right then and there that I was going to join a picket line. In fact, I started a picket line in my local star market. Uh, after several weeks of being on the picket line, I found it incredibly exciting, and I decided I'd just go fully into becoming a farm worker, United Farm Worker boycott organizer, and that's what I did. I joined uh, the boycott and was paid what everyone else was paid in, in the movement, which is $5 a week in room and board if you could organize it. And for the next several, week, several months, I worked in the East Coast boycott. It was very exciting. I learned an incredible amount. I learned about the labor movement. I learned about anti-racist movements. And I learned about the struggle of farm workers all around this country for justice. In the summer of 1976, the union called all of us together to come to California because they had been successful in putting a referendum on the ballot for a farm worker uh, uh, labor relations act. And so we were all out there to basically see if we could get this passed. I was assigned to San Francisco. I was in charge of housing and logistics. And uh, several weeks after I arrived in San Francisco, I was told that Caesar would be at a major event at Mission Dolores, and I was in charge of logistics. So I arrived early at Mission Dolores, this kind of sprawling Catholic complex, uh, um, and immediately went up second floor to the auditorium to get one of the most important things in place, which was a podium. Caesar had to have a podium. And so I went behind the stage, and there it was, a music stand. It was sturdy. It had an adjustable table, like this one. Uh, and it was uh, really just exactly what I had in mind. I brought it out. I put it where Caesar was going to stand. I got the farm worker Aztec Eagle flag and put it on the front of it. And I was really proud of myself. My work was done. Well, at this time, when the campaign was fully uh, uh, raging, uh, and when I say raging, it was raging because the growers were spending $30 million to defeat this referendum. And vigilantes were taking action against the United Farm Workers around the state. In fact, Caesar was getting up to 10 death threats a day. His security team were trained by Bobby Kennedy's people, and they took their job very, very seriously. Um, so they would be on hand, and in, in the auditorium that day, we'd have a special contingent of uh, a kind of an extra force, a group from San Francisco called Mission Rebels, which is a rehabilitation program for convicts, uh, was going to have 15 or 20 of their guys sprinkled throughout the audience just in case there was trouble. <laughs> so um, I was ready. The chairs were set up for the bishop and for Caesar and everybody, and Paco, who was the head of security for for the United Farm Workers, for, for Caesar, came up to me and he said, pointed to the podium, to the music stand, not the podium, and he said, 
what the hell is that? I said, well, it's the podium that Caesar's going to speak at. I was told there needed to be a podium. He said, that's not a podium. It's a music stand. Do you expect that Caesar Chavez, if he gets threatened, if something happens, that he has to hide his body for protection and shield himself? He's going to shield it behind this? No, he's not going to shield himself. He's not going to be here. Caesar Chavez won't speak unless you have a big wooden podium and it's here in one hour because that's when he's going to speak. I was flabbergasted. I had no idea where I could find something in Mission Dolores. I grabbed some of my boycotteros, which we kind of my fellow boycott organizers, and we went racing down the stairs across the courtyard and room to room to room looking for this podium. And there it was. We opened a door, and a gentleman was standing at a big wooden podium. It was two and a half feet wide and four feet tall. And on the front of it, it had a sign that said AA. We stumbled across a Spanish language Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. <laughs> I went up to the gentleman and I said in my very poor Spanish, Senor, es muy, muy importante. Senor Cesar Chavez está aquí. Necesito este. One of my boycottero friends who actually spoke Spanish came up and said, Bill, why don't you let me do this? <laughs> so he negotiated with the guy and pretty much they agreed, yeah, you can take it, but bring it back afterwards. So, okay. Well, we were home free. We had a podium. We were ready to go back to the auditorium and Caesar could speak. However, one problem. It wasn't a podium. It was a storage locker for books, probably hymnals and Bibles, and it was locked. And when we tried to move it, it must have weighed 300 pounds. It was incredibly heavy. So we had to get more boycotteros to come and we flipped it on its side and it was just unbelievably heavy. And we marched out crossed the, the courtyard, marched over to the steps. We had to go up two flights of stairs. The first flight of stairs almost killed us. We had to rest about 10 minutes. The second flight of stairs finished us off. And then we still had to get across the auditorium to where the music stand was waiting. So we got it over there. We removed the music stand. I took the farmworker flag, put it on the front of the podium, and Caesar was ready to speak. Well, in a little while, Paco came back. He looked at the podium. He looked at me with a kind of a look of satisfaction and dismissal. And <laughs> I felt like I'd been saved. <laughs> Cesar Chavez and his contingent arrived, and it was just electric. The, the place was completely filled. There were hundreds of people, and everyone was so excited and so fired up. And Caesar gave this amazing speech where he said that we had to knock on every single door, we had to talk to every voter, and we're going to pass this referendum, and farm workers were finally going to have justice in California. And then we did what we always do at farm worker events. We sang songs. De colores. And we, we did our farm worker chants. Viva la huelga! Viva la causa! <laughs> and then... Soon enough, it was over. Caesar and his security contingent went off to Sacramento to another event, and there we were. The podium was still there. <laughs> it was still 300 pounds. It still had to be moved back to the nice Alcoholics Anonymous people who had let us have it. But we had the Mission Rebels. These were big, brawny guys, and they, they said, yeah, we'll help you get it back there. They couldn't believe how heavy it was. <laughs> it took six of them to move it back. <laughs> so, in the end, unfortunately, we didn't pass the referendum. The growers had their way. They spent a lot of money. But that day, 
when I was charged with this big responsibility, it became clear to me how one person's action, one person's contribution to a movement is important and how the many, many people in our movement, whether they were the farm workers in the fields, the boycotteros working all over the country to uh, make the boycott happen, or the people out there, the millions of people really that were honoring the boycott and, and uh, not buying grapes and lettuce and gallo wine, that all of those people are a great movement and that we can actually change history. Here we are, 2019, the farm workers are still struggling. They're still looking for justice in the fields. They're still worried about La Migra and ICE. And so the struggle continues. And I ask you to continue to support the people to put food on our tables, continue to support farm workers. Thank you very much. Se puede. Si se puede. Si se puede. Thank you, Bill. That was downright inspiring. And a good setup for Lisa Bunker, who's coming up next. She works as a full-time author in Exeter, New Hampshire, where she lives with her wife, Dawn Hebner, a child psychologist and author in her own right. Lisa's second novel, Zenobia July, just came out from Viking. It's about a trans girl getting to live as a girl for the first time in a new family and a new school while solving cyber mysteries. New Hampshire made history this past November by electing two transgender women to serve in the New Hampshire House of Representatives. One of them is our next teller. When Lisa arrived in Concord, it didn't take her long to discover how important it was that she was showing up not only as a representative of the town of Exeter, but of all the New Hampshire gender-variant citizens. Tonight, she'll tell us about her recent experience standing up for the trans community in her story, representing. Come on up, Lisa. So yes, when I showed up in Concord um, this past January, I specifically did not want to lead with my identity. I didn't want to be that transgender woman who represents what town is it again? I wanted to be, I wanted to represent the people of the town of Exeter who elected me and three other people. Um, but I was aware from the very beginning that the fact that I was there as an out trans state legislator, one of the very first in the country, was going to matter in very real and important ways. And it did not take long for examples of how that was going to happen to, uh, to arise. Um, the first was easy and simple and straightforward. Uh, my colleague, Jerry Cannon, the other my friend and colleague, Jerry, the other trans woman who got elected this past November, um, quickly introduced a couple of trans-friendly bills, and so it was a simple matter to sign on as a co-sponsor and to write into my calendar the dates that those would be in committee, and I would go and testify in favor of them. The second opportunity to represent for the gender-variant community was a little bit more twisty. I became aware of another piece of legislation that had been introduced the previous year, uh, by a representative, I'll just call him Representative A. And Rep A's bill was very simple. His only purpose in submitting this legislation was to define any attempt to help your child with gender transition, for example, hormone blockers or something like that, as child abuse. Now, I am not only trans myself, I'm also the parent of a gender-variant child, and so this bill was just 
evidently hostile to me and people like me, and of course I wanted to oppose it in any way that I could. My first opportunity to do so did not take place in a committee meeting room. My first opportunity to do so took place the day before the committee meeting when I was invited along with all the rest of the Rockingham County uh, uh, representatives to a reception at the home of the president of the University of New Hampshire. So we were there to be schmoozed and lobbied. And after that happened, we were getting to know each other and talking. And I had done a little homework and tried to get to know my fellow reps. And I spotted somebody I knew. Um, or I, or I had seen his picture and learned his name. And I went to have a conversation with him. He was another first-time rep. Let's call him Rep B. And uh, <laughs> Rep B was on the committee that was going to hear Rep A's bill in the morning. So I went and introduced myself to him, and I said, I'm going to see you again tomorrow. I'm coming to your committee to testify in a bill. And we got into a conversation, and I said, which bill? And he said, oh, yes, that one. I was thinking I would vote in favor of that bill. That was a key moment. Um, I drew on experience and training from years as an activist and did not react, stayed in the conversation, stayed present, stayed respectful. And I just tried to do what I had learned to do as an activist back in the days when I was fighting for other sort of trans-positive legislation, which was to share my story, show myself to him as a human. And I explained how hostile that bill was to me and to people like me. And by the end of a conversation of about 10 minutes, he had changed his story from, yes, I think I'm going to support that, to, you know, maybe I don't know enough about this yet. I think I should do some more homework. So that was a promising change. Um, I went the next day. I testified against the bill. I was the only, uh, the, the sponsor was the only one who testified in favor of it. Um, and I was gratified to hear a week later that when it came time for the committee to vote, the vote was unanimous in favor of ITL, which stands for inexpedient to legislate. So that's the committee's recommendation to the full House. Keep in mind, the sponsor himself was not on this committee, so he didn't vote against his own bill. But the 20 people, including Rep. B., voted against it. So that was another step in a good direction. The next thing that happened was the bill came up before the full house, 400 state reps in the state of New Hampshire. So there's a lot of us in that room. And there's a thing called the consent calendar. So when a bill comes out of committee with a unanimous recommendation, it generally goes on consent. And all the bills on consent are voted on at once because it's assumed that there's no significant opposition to them. But any representative who wants to can pull a bill back off consent, and Rep. A chose to do that. He wanted to vote in the full House. I respect that. He was following his principles. He was trying to do a thing he believed in. So he pulled his bill back off consent. It was requested that the whole House vote on it, and a roll call vote was also requested, which means we all had to sit in our chairs. We have these three buttons, one to show we're present and one to say yes and one to say no. And so we all sat down in our seats and voted on this bill, I'm happy to report that it was overwhelmingly defeated. Um, the vote was somewhere in the range of 300 no and only about 60 yes. Since it was a roll call vote, I was able to go online afterwards and see who the yes votes were. And it turned out that one of them was a gentleman I would like to call Rep C. <laughs> I promise I'm done. There's, there's no Rep D. Um, Rep C is in my committee. I serve in the Ways and, Ways and Means Committee, which is a refreshingly ungendered committee. There's really no gender to state revenues, so I get to be just Representative Bunker, which I like. Um, but Rep C is in that committee. 
Short term, I just sort of thought, all right, I'll be careful. He seems like a nice guy, but he voted this way, so I'll just have my shields up when I talk to him in case gender comes up in an unpleasant way. It did not. However, I did have another encounter with Rep C regarding gender because one of Jerry's bills came up for hearing. The purpose of Jerry's bill was to make it easier than it currently is to change your birth records in the state of New Hampshire. This is a thing trans people do when they're going through gender transition. They want to change their names and gender markers on their birth certificates. Currently, it takes a judge's order to do that. And a judge's order is a tricky and risky thing for a trans person going through transition because you don't know what judge you're going to get and you have no idea in advance what that judge's attitude might be about the whole idea of gender transition. And so it's really kind of a gamble. Jerry's bill said, let's change that to a letter from a certified, from a, you know, an appropriate medical professional, which is a lower bar, which is in common usage in other stages of, of gender transition that people go through. So that was the purpose of the bill. I went to testify, and then I stayed, because I wanted to sit there in a chair and look at the other people who showed up to testify. I've been fighting for trans rights in New Hampshire for three or four years now, and I've gotten to know some of the members of the opposition, and I have heard in previous times some of the really pretty hateful things that they would be likely to say in that situation. But a very interesting thing happened. Um, people stood up and spoke against the bill, but they did not trot out the same arguments that I was used to from two or three years ago, which were harsher arguments, the purpose of which was to really deny the existence of trans people or the legitimacy of the idea of trans people. They were arguing against the bill, but they were arguing about sort of the sanctity of state records and things like that. And among the people who testified against the bill was my friend and colleague, Rep. C., from the Ways and Means Committee, who stood up. And one of the things he said, he said in words, well, I guess at this point, this trans thing is just a thing. It's just, it's happened. That was a fascinating moment to me. And the lesson I took away from this series of encounters um, is something that I have learned from my activist work, which is stories matter. Once you get somebody to see you as a person, it's much harder to dismiss the whole category to which you belong, whatever attitude they might have about that category. But also, there's this idea of the window of what's considered normal to talk about. And I think a lot of what's going on in our culture and society right now is about where is that window? We're going to shift it farther to one end of the political spectrum, one end of the other. What's normal to talk about? And I, I'm not taking sole credit for this at all by any means. Jerry is serving with me, and there's all the activists and the trans and gender variant people who showed up for years now in committee after committee to testify, to share our stories. And it seems to me that what we succeeded in doing was representing ourselves as real people, the fact that we are trans or gender variant in some way, just be one incidental um, detail of who we were as humans. And I think we've managed to shift the window somewhat back towards the idea of a normal, a normal or a we or an us that just can include folks like me and my child and the other gender variant folks that we are in, in the New Hampshire House to represent for. So that gives me hope. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Well stated. Next up. We have 
Nina Lasiga, who has come all the way from Connecticut to tell us a story. She's from Stratford, Connecticut, although she has lived most of her life in Brooklyn, New York. Following a 30-year career as a corporate chemist, she is now an artist, storyteller, and ukuleleist. <laughs> it's a word, isn't it? Whose passion is to create immersive experiences for learning and entertainment. Five years ago, after finding a message in a Coke bottle on the beach from a little boy who had a big dream, Nina was inspired to begin storytelling on stage for the first time. She has since told stories all over New England at Massmouth, the Northeast and White Mountain Storytelling Festivals, at Granite State Story Swap, and she has become co-organizer of Pechacucha Night Visual Storytelling in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I want to try that sometime. Sounds pretty interesting. Tonight, Nina will tell us a New York City story about an adventure outside of her comfort zone that changed her life. It is titled, Coming Out. Come on up, Nina. I have a confession to make. I'm a closet musician. <laughs> it was fall of 2017. I was visiting my friend Kalen in his artist studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the middle of a hipster neighborhood. He's a puppeteer, and he performs in the subways. And his art is way out there. And he's half my age. I said, hey, Kalen, do you think that we could perform together one of these days? He goes, why don't you just perform on your own? <laughs> I can't. Why not? I just don't know. He goes behind him into a little cubby and takes out this teeny flyer and hands it to me and says, this is Global Elevator Day. It's a day of art installations and musical performances inside elevators. <laughs> Will you do it? I said no. <laughs> but when I got home, I googled elevator art, and I saw elevators decorated like Victorian mansions. There were people in costumes, like business suits and animal heads. There were musicians playing Mozart. And it's the kind of thing that you go uninvited, you claim your elevator, it's guerrilla art, and you get out of there as quick as you can. <laughs> this was so me. I decided to change my mind. My place, Macy's Herald Square in New York City. Why? It was my home away from home. When we were growing up, Mom always took us to Radio City Music Hall to see a movie and the Rockettes. And on the way back, we would walk over to Macy's and ride the old-fashioned wooden escalators like they were an amusement park ride. So Kalen said, Nina, are you sure you want to do Macy's? You could have a run-in with security. 
I said, oh, come on. Is Macy's going to throw Grandma out of an elevator for singing a song of friendship? I don't think so. (laughs) But I well knew that New York City was under a red security alert because there was some terrorist activities earlier that year. So there was a chance I would get strip searched. I did it anyway. On December 12, 2017, I stood outside the front entrance of Macy's with a Thanksgiving Day parade passes by. I had a backpack on my back with the neck of the ukulele sticking out. And I was kind of vibrating, and I said, I don't know if I can do this. And I stepped inside, and this whoosh of heat hit me in the face. I said, oh, I don't want to sweat. I better better take my jacket off. So I go and put my backpack down by the Louis Vuitton section in Macy's. And security swoops right over like they knew I was up to something. (laughs) Is that a ukulele inside your backpack? (laughs) Indeed it is. We love the ukulele. Will you play a song? (laughs) Okay. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. He said, I love that. Thank you so much. I said, you're welcome. Happy holidays. And I hightailed it to the elevator bank. (laughs) And it was so crowded because it was holiday time. So I put my ukulele in my arms and I stepped into the first elevator and I sang. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. Everyone looked up (laughs) above the doors where it lists all the floors and the departments. They ignored me like a beggar on the subway. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. There were like tears forming in my eyes. I said, you need to get off. And so I did. And I came up with a plan. When the next elevator came, I stepped on. And I made an announcement. Good afternoon, everyone. Today is elevator day. And in elevators all around the world, there are musicians performing. I was chosen especially for Macy's because my song is from Toy Story and Santa is here. (laughs) Parents held their children tighter. (laughs) Children looked up to me with Christmas morning eyes and their mouths open like they just met the tooth fairy and the eyes of the adults reflected their images and then people started to bob their head to the music and this guy standing right across from me says hey little lady Do you know how to play Desperado? (laughs) And I said, I wish I knew that one. And my reaction was, I'm killing this. I just got a special request. (laughs) And I got off the elevator 
And I said, I am so relieved. No one has caught on that besides You've Got a Friend in Me, the only other song I memorized was Hound Dog. (laughs) (laughs) So it's time to take a celebratory photograph. And there was only one person nearby. And he was a 40-year-old man who looked really boring. (laughs) And so I said, he's perfect. I handed him my digital camera and said, would you take a photo of me inside the next elevator playing the ukulele? He said, yes. (laughs) Well, we stepped into this elevator, and from out of nowhere, all these people piled in, and we got separated. I'm thinking, goodbye, camera. So I called out, are you there? He goes, I'm Walter, who are you? Oh, Walter, I'm Nina, and today is Global Elevator Day. And in elevators all around the world, people are performing. Would you like to hear a song? He said, sure. (laughs) You've got a friend in me. And people started to smile. And they applauded. And as they exited the elevator, there was room for Walter to take my photo. Hey, Walter, take one like this, and like this, and like this. (laughs) When we got to the ground floor, he returned my camera to me. And he stood outside the elevator looking at me and said, I would really like to do that again. I said, well, get back in here. And he did. (laughs) I sang and played in Macy's elevator until my voice wore out. I spent three hours. (laughs) And I learned that by stepping out of the elevator, stepping into the elevator... I stepped out of the closet and that I was a closet musician because I feared making mistakes and my audience didn't care about my imperfections. From that day onward, I played music my way, perfectly imperfect. You've got a friend. a friend in me. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Gee, that really makes me want to take a chance and climb into an elevator. (laughs) What a treat to have um, somebody playing the ukulele. Next up, we have Arnie Alpert from Canterbury, New Hampshire. He is co-director of the American Friends Service Committee's New Hampshire program. He is co-host of Statehouse Watch, a radio show on WNHNLP in Concord, and also a member of the Board of New Hampshire Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Now, um, just last Thursday, as you may be aware, 
By a single vote, the New Hampshire House overrode the governor's veto of the death penalty repeal bill. The Senate will now vote on Thursday. So this is really happening. <laughs> and Arnie is going to tell us all about that, along with how his own perspective was formed and what he has learned over the course of this decades-long campaign to end the death penalty in New Hampshire. In his story, Bending Toward Justice. Come on up, Arnie. That's going to not do it. So anyway, so if you're telling a fairy tale, it's easy to start with, all right, and then it probably ends with, they live happily ever after. If you're telling a true tale, it's a little harder to figure out where it starts, especially when they tell you that you've only got 10 minutes. All right, so I'm going to start this story. I think the story starts in 1985 when I was with a group of Quakers. Now, do people know anything about Quakers? If you know anything about Quakers, you probably know that Quakers are against killing, right? All right, so when there was a proposal made to change the state's official method of execution from death by hanging to death by lethal, lethal injection, the Quakers got together and they said, this is the wrong discussion to be having. We shouldn't be talking about how to kill people. We should be talking about not killing people. So the Quakers wrote a letter, which they call a minute. Uh, and I went with Marion Baker, uh, a member of the Ware Friends meeting and who was the clerk of the All New Hampshire Friends gathering. And we went and delivered it at a public hearing uh, at the State House and basically said, instead of discussing this, you should talk about ending the death penalty. So I continued to follow the issue uh, over the next decade or so, as you know, once in a while there would be bills that would would affect the issue, but it really wasn't until 1997. And wait, maybe that's when the story starts. Because in 1997, uh, in the late summer and early fall, there was a series of three different murders or multiple murders that took place that got the state's attention. One of them was the rape and murder of an eight-year-old girl. One of them was the murder of a police officer, and another one was a guy who went on a killing spree, and by the time it was over, he was dead, but also dead were two state police officers, a judge, and a journalist. Uh, and with all of this going on, the state's political leaders, who sometimes operate by uh, some type of reflex action, decided that the proper response to this was to expand the use of the death penalty. And this was headed by our Democratic governor, Gene Shaheen, working in league with the Republican heads of the New Hampshire House and Senate. And they drafted legislation to expand the death penalty. Now, I was part of a group that then was formed uh, initially under the leadership of the New Hampshire Council of Churches to try to stop this bill from going through. And when it came up for a vote, in the House of Representatives on March 12, 1998, an interesting thing happened because two young representatives decided that instead of simply using this as an opportunity to speak out against expansion of the death penalty, they were going to seize the opportunity and say, this is the time to get rid of it altogether. And I was sitting in the House gallery watching it. And I was watching when Representative Clifton Below, the son of a preacher, uh, from Lebanon, New Hampshire, got up and told the story of a fellow named John Newton, who some of you might have heard of. He was the captain of a slave ship. He, by his own admission, was responsible for the violent deaths of dozens of people and was responsible for the captivity and enslavement of God knows how many others. A criminal, 
by any account, by certainly by our standards now. But John Newton went through a conversion. He changed his mind. He changed his direction. He became a leader in the movement against the slave trade, and he became a writer of hymns, and he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. And that if he could be changed even after doing these horrible acts, then so could anybody. And who are we as people or as a state to take away that opportunity from them? Now, after Representative Bilo, up stood Representative Rennie Cushing. And in the gallery with me was Rennie's wife and their infant daughter, Grace. And Rennie got up and told the story of how 10 years earlier, a neighbor came knocking on the door of his parents' house on Winnicott Road in Hampton. And when his father answered the door, the neighbor pulled out a shotgun. And as Rennie says, turned his chest into hamburger and he died immediately. And Rennie told the story that taking away the life of this person who had taken away the life of his father was not going to do anything for him and his family. It was simply going to fill another coffin and leave another family bereft and missing their family member. And that there were other things that were needed by people, including his daughter, Amazing Grace. (laughs) Now, what this did was it turned the debate on its head. Because prior to that moment, if you think about it, Most people or most people in that room of legislators would have been under the impression that if you had lost your father or any of your loved ones to a violent homicide like that, that you would want to get the person who did it. And for Rennie to get up and say that there was another way to look at it turned the discussion around. And the bill to the amendment to abolish the death penalty didn't go through, but the amendment to expand the death penalty was defeated by a very wide margin and went away. Now, for me, it did something else also, because I started to think about my own story. Because when I was 11 years old, on what would have been the first day of school after the New Year's Christmas break, my father came into my room before I was fully awake and sat on the edge of my bed and told me that during that night, a burglar had broken into my grandfather's hardware store, and my grandfather surprised him, and the burglar grabbed a claw hammer and hit him over the head and killed him. And I was 11 years old, so, I mean, as I think about it now, looking back on that, what happened over the next few days or the next week or weeks is a bit of a blur. But these are the things that I remember. I remember... Everybody in the Jewish tradition, there's a period they call Shiva, which for a period of seven days, people gather in the homes of the bereaved family. So I remember people coming to my grandmother's house and bringing blintzes and knishes and kogels, but, but also people talking about my grandfather and what a wonderful person he was and what he meant to the community, uh, which I certainly understood. And I remember people surrounding my grandmother with love. And what I realized looking back on this years later is I didn't remember people talking about the killer. I did remember that when a man was apprehended and accused and brought to trial and found guilty, that our family was relieved. And I remembered that it was extremely difficult for my grandmother, who had to go to court to be a witness. But I remember what a relief it was when she didn't have to do that more than once. And I didn't really think about it that much Again, perhaps until 2010, 
when a lovely young woman named Molly Hawthorne McDougall was murdered in her home in Hanukkah, New Hampshire. And I had probably met Molly once when she was this big because I knew her mom, her mom, Margaret Hawthorne. And I remember, and I went to the memorial service, and at the memorial service, Margaret got up and said, we will not succumb to fear, and we will not let this turn us toward a desire for revenge, that we are people who believe in love, and we are not going to let the loss of Molly take that away from us. We are not going to allow the killer to turn us into something that we are not. And I talked to Margaret after the service, and I told her a little bit about my grandfather. And I thought about the fact that what was it that enabled me, after going through a traumatic experience like that when I was only 11, to turn into a flaming peace activist (laughs) and a guy who supported abolishing the death penalty and support civil rights and human rights, and it had my family reacted in a different way, had my family gone down the path of desiring revenge, I'm sure that that would have had what I would now see as a poisoning effect on me in my formation. And that the choice my family took for whatever reason is one that enabled me to become a person who would end up being a leader of the movement to abolish the death penalty in New Hampshire, which I'm proud to be part of right now. So last Thursday, there I was in the gallery of the house, with Margaret Hawthorne, and Rennie Cushing got up. He's now still a state representative. He's now the chair of the Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee. His hair is way grayer than it was back then. And he talked about John Newton. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The people can change their minds. The people can turn their lives around. And he talked about his daughter, Amazing Grace, who just the previous week had graduated from college. And he talked about his father and how we should not allow killers to take away our values, even if they take away our loved ones. And that if we believe in respecting life and we believe in respecting others, then we've got to apply that across the board. And by a single vote, the governor's veto of the death penalty repeal bill was overturned. And as Pat says, on Thursday this week, it will come up in the Senate. And if 16 senators vote in favor of repeal, New Hampshire will be done with the death penalty. So that, maybe that's where the story ends, but maybe not. Because as I thought about it, and I thought about, like, how do you sustain a campaign like that. If for me, it started in 1985, how do you keep that going? Who are the, I think about the people like Rennie Cushing or Cliff Bilo or other people who are part of this struggle, Barbara Keshen and Marty Hunt and all these other folks. I think about the other people who've talked about their families. I think about Carol talking about her father losing, being murdered in his furniture store. And I think about Anne, whose husband was killed in a drive-by shooting where she was shot at as well. And I think of Bess, whose mom was raped and murdered when she was a little girl, and they never caught the person who did it. And Bess is part of the movement to abolish the death penalty. And I think of all these I think of John Breckenridge, who was the police partner of Michael Briggs, the officer who was murdered in Manchester in 2006, and John Breckenridge, after this took place, thought about his own religious upbringing and his values and decided that he was going to support doing away with the death penalty. 
And I think about all of these things that have changed over this time. And I realize that for anybody to sustain a campaign like this, it's not just about that particular victory. It's about something. It's always about something that's bigger. And I think about Dr. King, who borrowed words from a 19th century Unitarian theologian. And at the end of the march from, Montgomery to, from Selma to Montgomery, he said, how long will it take? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So where we are right now, where we hope to be on Thursday, is not at the end, but we are at a point on that arc of the moral universe, and it is bending towards justice, and we can all be part of making that bend take place. Thanks. Thank you, Arnie. Maybe some people in the Senate will listen to this story and be rationally influenced. That'd be a beautiful thing. Next up, we have Martha Reed Johnson who resides just south of the border in uh, Georgetown, Massachusetts, where she is a school counselor and behavior specialist, a caretaker for her 86-year-old mother and their 200-year-old family home. Martha is always finding and seeking extraordinary stories in the ordinary moments of life. Over her years in education, she has come to realize that there are times when the teacher learns more from the student then the student learns from the teacher. Ain't that the truth? She'll tell us about one of those times when a student taught everyone to stand up and take a stand with courage in the face of a bully. Her story is titled, Josie Up. (laughs) Come on up, Martha. So in my many years as a school counselor with middle schoolers, I've always wanted to be able to affect change. And then I met Josie. And Josie taught me what change was really all about. Josie arrived seventh grader, and she came to the registration table, and I took one look at her, and I thought, I think she's in the wrong place. She looked like a fourth grader. She was small in stature. She had wild, crazy, curly hair that looked like she had cut it herself and not done a very good job. She had very thick glasses, clothes that didn't quite fit right, and a scar on her face. And when she began to speak, her words were very mumbled, and I couldn't really understand what she was saying. And I was looking at her, trying very hard to listen, and suddenly a young man came running up next to her, her who I recognized as one of my former students. He said, Miss Johnson, this is my little sister Josie. She's going to be at school this year. And I thought, wow, Josie, another one from this family. (laughs) What's this going to be like? I knew her five older brothers. I knew them well. They were all trouble. But the family was full of chaos and confusion and limited resources and real short on kindness and compassion. So the behavior of her brothers made perfect sense to me. And so I braced myself and prepared for another year with what I was told by the brother would be the last member of the family to come to my school. But I also looked at Josie and I thought, looking at her, I thought, 
she's kind of somebody who will definitely be a target of the bullies at school. And I need to be careful and kind and, and watch out for her. And she ended up in a classroom that I visit every week to tell stories. And so I was able to form a relationship with Josie and, and get to know her. And Josie and I fell in love over stories. And one of the things I noticed immediately is that although Josie appeared to be somebody that everyone could take advantage of and that anyone could be a bully to, nobody messed with Josie. (laughs) And Josie knew exactly how to get what she needed in the world. And she was one of those people who just is present in the moment. And when I would go into her classroom and I would tell stories, she would just sit on the edge of her seat eyes open, ears open, just soaking it all in. And I knew there was a storyteller inside of Josie. (laughs) And not too long after the school year had started, Josie started escaping from her classroom, and she would find her way across the campus to my office. And she'd plow open the door, and she would say, tell me a story. And, And I would tell her a story, and I said, but you can't leave till you tell me a story. And so she began to tell me stories. And as she told me her stories, I began to better understand her speech patterns, her tone, the cadence of her voice, and I began to understand Josie. And by default, at times, became her translator in the school. And one day, she was leaving my office, and she walked down the long hallway, and she came to a group of teachers that had gathered in the hallway during their planning period, as teachers do, and and were just talking amongst themselves, and weren't paying any attention to this little girl with the wild hair and the thick glasses that was standing very still, but right in the middle of them. And she put out her hand, and she said a bunch of words that made no sense to anybody, but she continued to just stand there with her hand out. And I watched my friend Christy, who was one of the language arts teachers on that hallway, and I could see Christy trying to unravel the words in her mind. And finally she looked at at Josie and she ran back into her classroom and she came out with a pencil and and she said, this, is this what you want? Josie took the pencil and said, thanks, and went off on her way. And they all turned to look at me and they said, who was that? And I walked up to the group and I said, well, that was Josie. And I looked at Christy who was a former South Carolina beauty queen participant in the Miss USA contest. And Christy was as beautiful as she was a bit scattered. And sometimes in her scatteredness, she would get herself in trouble at school with our principal, who was quite a bully. And he was real good at running over people like Christy and many of the other teachers in our school. And in fact, many of the teachers would go to the office and they would end up leaving and quietly crying as they went back to their classrooms. And I looked at Christy and I said, you know what, Christy? I think sometimes you're going to need to Josie up. (laughs) And suddenly that little phrase, Josie up, kind of rocketed through the school. And any time any of the teachers had to go to the principal's office, they'd say, you better Josie up. (laughs) And so it kind of became our little rallying cry. Well, one day Josie was in my office, and and she saw this flyer on the table in my office, and it was for a storytelling festival, the Storytelling Festival of North Carolina in the Southeast. And she noticed that that my picture was on that festival, I had gotten a proof for a festival was happening in the spring. And, and she said, you're, you're there, you're there. And I, I said, yes, I'm going to be there. And then I thought, that festival always has an event for students. 
Now, I had asked my principal years ago about taking students to a festival, and he'd always said no. And I told Josie that they had this special time that students could go, but I knew that it was in North Carolina. It was even though it was only 40 minutes away, her family would never get her there. And Josie said, you'll take me. You'll take all of us. And I said, I've asked. She said, well, let's ask now. And she grabbed my hand, and she marched me (laughs) to the principal's office. And together, Josie and I asked if we could take her class to the storytelling festival. And there was something about Josie you couldn't turn down. And the principal said, yes. And so spring came, and I was loading 30 students with 16 chaperones (laughs) on the bus to go to the storytelling festival. I sat them all in the seats with their teachers and the parent volunteers, and then I scooted away, and they didn't know what was happening, but I walked up on stage to emcee the event. And I looked down at them, and I said, nah, I can see every one of you. And they sat there in their little group, and there was about 800 students in the tent. It was a wonderful festival. Tellers from all over the country were there. And I would introduce the tellers, and I would sit down. And Willie Claflin got up to tell a story. He's a wonderful storyteller, and he was telling a story about a sheep lost in the woods and a wolf out to get to the sheep, and it was very suspenseful, and 800 students were silent. You could hear a pin (laughs) drop in the tent, and all of a sudden, in that moment of suspense, there was a, (laughs) and I looked over, and I knew exactly who it was. Josie couldn't help herself. She was just there in the moment. And when Willie Claflin sat down, he said, Did you hear the sheep? I said, I know the sheep. (laughs) Well, when I got the kids on the bus and we were driving home, I listened to them retelling all the stories that they heard. It was amazing. And we got back to the school just about a half an hour before dismissal, which is a teacher's worst nightmare. And I said to the class, I'd love for you to write a thank you note to the tellers and and tell them what your favorite story was, what you liked about the festival, because I'll be back over the weekend introducing the tellers, and I'd like to use your words to introduce the tellers. And the teacher looked at me, and she said, okay, they can do that, and she handed out the papers, and she said, well, Tiffany will never write anything. Don't even give her a paper. She hasn't written anything in two years here at school, so don't expect anything now. I said, that's fine. If we get a few, that's great. I was on Thursday. So Friday morning, I got some of those, you know, thank yous in my mailbox. And by lunchtime, the teacher came, and she gave me all the rest of them. And she said, Jahi won't shut up talking, talking, talking. And, and, but Tiffany, she wrote a thank you. And her thank you note began, Dear Barbara McBride Smith, I love your story of the skeleton woman. And then she continued to write the entire story that she had heard the day before. And I thought, Tiffany can write. We just never gave her her anything she wanted to write. (laughs) It was amazing. Jahi never wrote his letter, but he never shut up all day long and ended up in suspension scheduled for Monday for his talking all day. (laughs) So Monday came. I was excited to tell the kids about introducing the tellers at the festival with their words. And I was going about my business, and I heard on the walkie-talkie the principal's voice. Miss Johnson, come to my office right away. Well, my off walkie-talkie is also the same walkie-talkie frequency that all the janitors' walkie-talkies are on, so it kind of goes all through the school. So people in various locations knew that I had been called to the principal's office in his angry, mean, 
voice. And as I walked down the hallway, teachers opened up their doors and said, better Josie up. (laughs) And I went into the principal's office, and Jahi was standing there in the middle of a sentence retelling a story that he had heard. He was on a roll, and the principal just looked at me, and he said, he will not stop talking in suspension. Would you please take him back there and make sure he is quiet? Yes, sir. So I stepped out of the office with Jahi, and we were walking down the hallway, and I just looked at Jahi. I said, that was great. You got the story perfect. And I gave him a high five. (laughs) And about 30 seconds later, I heard the voice on my (laughs) walkie-talkie. Miss Johnson, would you please come back to my office? And Jahi said, Miss Johnson. And he pointed up to the security cameras in the hallway, (laughs) where the principal had the screens over his desk. (laughs) And I took he back to suspension, and I walked into the principal's office, and he proceeded to tell me that I wasn't doing my job and that Jahi had not stopped talking all day long, and clearly he cannot listen. He will not follow the rules. And that little voice said, Josie up, Josie up, girl. And I looked at the principal, and I said, clearly, he listens quite well because he was in the middle of repeating a story perfectly that he heard last night. Thursday, and it is Monday. He listens quite well to words worth listening to. (laughs) And that little voice in my head said, I did it. I josied up. I josied up. I said, I certainly hope that you will let us come back next year to the festival because the kids were really great. And he looked at me and he said, well... It was real quiet here Thursday. I think that will work. <laughs> so I left the class. I went to suspension. I informed Jahi that he had gotten us a ticket to the festival next year. And I went to Josie, and I gave her a hug and said, thank you for getting us to the festival. And Josie looked at me, and she said, oh, Miss Johnson, I loved listening to those stories. But more than anything... I love the stories you tell me. And that little girl has been in my heart evermore. And every time I need to muster up some courage, I think, Josie up, girl. might have to start using that. (laughs) You're handing it to all of us, I feel like. That's fabulous. Well, thank you so much to all of tonight's amazing storytellers. What another, another fabulous night here at True Tales. And also thanks to all of you for being here in the audience and being part of it. Let's give all of you a hand. Class? Sure. Goes like you start out slow, you do it together. <laughs> then you grab the speed up. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Learn something new. Fabulous.